Why do you look for the living among the dead? Lord, make me an instrument he is of the what is risen? Where there is hatred, let me Where there is anger, pardon. Where there is doubt, thank Oh God, oh Jesus! Sarah, I've only known you for, goodness, like eight months or so? Yeah. Not a long Not time. Not too long. But at a very pivotal point in your life. For sure. Because you are 21 years old. Can we talk about details about you? Is that fair game or? Yeah. Okay. If there's anything, I'll just like yeah. mention. Yeah. I'm 20. You're 20. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You're you are 20, 20 years you old. at least 21. Nope. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you what year you were born? I could do the math. math. 1998. <laughs> 1998. Yeah. You don't remember in sync. I have no idea what that is. Whoa. <laughs> I hurt for you, and I also envy you. I don't really hurt you. for you, but... Uh, That's amazing. <laughs> That's wild. Okay. 20 years old. You're very mature for your age, though, because Thank we got you. into deep conversations pretty quickly, I would say. Um, and I don't know the best way to segue into your story. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us, like, some... If you could do, like, your life journey in a nutshell. Like, in three to five minutes... Give us like the snapshot of like Sarah's life, where you're from, what kind of family you were born into, and kind of like the journey that you're on now. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I was actually born in Syria, um, and I moved here. I moved to California when I was three with my family, and so obviously I was raised here. Um, and I grew up in a very like strict um, and conservative um, family like life, and also community. Mm. Um, so. We know a lot of um, Muslim Americans in the area and, you know, Syrian um, Americans in the area as well. And so um, my family definitely, like, kept us, like, you know, very in this very tight-knit community, like, even for, um, like, schools and, like, um, activities. Like, my second home is the local mosque that I grew up going to. I would go like every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like my entire weekend spent there. All my friends would go. So like um, it was just, um, that's just how my family life was. It was definitely very integrated within the community, but very integrated within the Syrian Muslim community. Mm -hmm. So even though like I grew up here, um, like I didn't have like a single like, you know, non-Muslim friend outside of like school, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, like I wasn't allowed to like go over to a non-Muslim's like house um or like go out with them or anything like that it wasn't until like I got to college that I was you know I kind of just took that on myself and I was like okay I have you know my own car now like I don't (laughs) need to ask for permission anymore and stuff like that so yeah that was kind of like my social life I um you know have a close group of friends that again are all Syrian all Muslim Mm. um and like I'm mentioning both because they kind of both play like a very like integral role sure um And so, yeah, and um, obviously really religious. And um, I mean, I was a really religious kid also. I think up until like 10th grade, I was very, very religious. Um, 
that was like a lot more religious than I've been in the past few years and then afterwards I kind of like fell off but also um it was just an up and down kind of thing like Mm -hmm. you know I would feel not as faithful but then be you know feel or like go back to being more faithful or more religious um and I think that had to do with just different things that were like going on like whether it was like friendship problems or like stress from school or whatever um I never like gave it too much thought You're spending all of this time at the mosque. Uh, is one of your parents like working at the mosque? Are they in some sort of a leadership position? Yeah, well, actually, my dad, um, less when I was younger, actually, and more in recent years, he was very, very active um, in like uh, leadership there. Um, he based, like, basically did all the community work, um, all the community organizing and things like that. Like everyone in, within the community knows him, um, and not just like within the mosque, but like in the larger like Muslim population here in Southern California. Oh, wow. Yeah. He just has like a really large network. Um, so without getting too specific again, Mm -hmm. like for the sake of identity and stuff, but, Mm -hmm. uh, is there like within the Christian church, we have like pastors and deacons and stuff like that. I'm wondering like, how does the leadership structure within a mosque? Mm -hmm. Like where, is there a position that that is or? Yeah. So he's not like, he's not a religious leader. He's more, it's like a community leader. Okay. So, you know, we have a sheikh, we Mm -hmm. call him, um, that would be like a priest Mm -hmm. at our church Mm -hmm. and they essentially like you know, they deal with more of like the religious things going mm-hmm. on in the community. And then like they, there's like a board of trustees and, you know, boards of this and that for like the other things, because it's um, like the mosque is also a community center, not just like, you mm-hmm. know, a place for people to like worship and things. There's like activities for families and programs for kids and all ages and things like that year round. Um, and there's like a school there too, like a high school, a private high school and right. elementary school, middle school, whatever. Um, so yeah, he wasn't really involved in like the religious side and actually, um, I would say for my dad, it's, he's just more, um, cultural, mm-hmm. uh, culturally religious than like actually religious. Like, hmm. you know, he still prays five times a day, but like, I would say that's the most of like what he does in terms of religion. Um, and everything else is more, um, like this is how he was raised. This is what he believes in. You know, this is how things should be kind of. And it's definitely like his Syrian upbringing that mm-hmm. plays a huge role into it less than more than religion does um so you know my mom's different my mom's like she's more of the religious one Mm -hmm. um still cultural but she'll like sit down and understand like okay you know you you don't have to like do this because you don't like agree with it or you don't you know you're you've you were raised here things are different but when it comes to religion like religion is universal it doesn't matter if you were you know raised in america or in syria for her but my dad is different so there is that kind of like difference in attitude but when i was growing up like culture and religion is really blended it like i never made that differentiation Hmm. until like I was older, like me and my friends, we never like used to realize like, oh, this is actually not, you know, this wasn't something um, coming from Islam. This is just because our parents are all Syrian, (laughs) you know, and we didn't know the difference like when we were younger. And for our parents, too, they often don't know the difference either. A lot of things they think um, are Islamic, but really it's just their Syrian upbringing. There's a framework that I basically live by that helps me understand people's spiritual journey, no matter their religion. It's a three-stage process that begins with construction, 
which usually happens early on in life when our parents hand down their religious beliefs, as Sarah just described. The second stage is then deconstruction, which is the process Sarah is currently in the middle of. And the third stage is reconstruction. Most people don't make it to reconstruction. And before you call me a cynic, I'm referring to what I've learned from much wiser people than myself when I say that. Everyone from Jesus to Buddha to Muhammad to Eckhart Tolle, and of course my theological man crush Richard Rohr, all agree it's a narrow road to enlightenment, aka reconstruction, and not many are willing to take it. In the Old Testament, this three-stage process is reflected first by the Torah and all the laws helping mankind to construct their religion, then by prophets like Elijah and Isaiah coming to tell us how much we've been fucking up the laws God gave us, thus deconstructing our religion. Then finally, the wisdom literature of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes help us to realize the paradoxical, lifelong journey of reconstructing our religious practice. Many young conservative Christians, especially men, dip their toe into deconstruction at seminary or with an atheist friend, but then get cold feet at the realization that they may be further off course than anticipated. And so, they hunker back down even harder into the religion they reconstructed as children and call this orthodoxy, traditional family values, or even righteousness. On the flip side, many liberal Christians, insert Dan and myself into this camp, can become obsessed with deconstruction because we've never personally experienced the God described by our parents' conservative religion. Or, life has just kicked the shit out of us with a barrage of traumatic life experiences. Or both. It's sort of like how many of us graduate college and then have to get a shitty job in retail and we still don't know how to do our taxes properly or change the oil in our car. And around 24 years old, we're like, the fuck did I spend two decades in school for? Glad I've got 50k in debt to show for it. Thanks for all the guidance, folks! Anyway, reconstruction. Reconstruction is a wise person's game. I've only met a few truly wise people doing the work of reconstruction, and they all have this strange mix of thick skin with a gentle spirit. They don't have all the answers, but they are certainly comfortable with all the questions. They are who I hope to become someday. But I completely understand why the jump from deconstruction to reconstruction defeats most of us. And it's because of all the reasons Sarah is describing in this very episode. Now, just to give you a little more context, we recorded this episode over a year ago, just before Sarah was about to graduate from college and run away from home to a new city with a new job, free from any religious traditions. So before we published this episode in early January of 2020, I called Sarah to find out how the past year had been. And y'all, it's been rough. There's been tons of drama, lots of tears, and even a super fun moment where her dad spent a few thousand dollars on a private investigator to find out everything about her and even the person she was dating at the time. Yeah, I was blown away. I was even more blown away that Sarah still calls her mom every day, still visits home regularly, and even wears the hijab whenever she's back in LA in order to spare her parents more religious shame and gossip from her tight-knit Muslim community. A perfect example of why the third and final step of reconstruction is an elusive stage of the spiritual journey, because it often requires us to sever beliefs, behaviors, and bonds with people we may deeply care about, even though our relationship with them is completely dysfunctional. I've seen Sarah struggle amongst more than a few of my married friends and family, where one person is hunkered down in the construction stage while the other person is working through deconstruction. These relationships often only survive if one or both people are extremely deceptive, which is the case in Sarah's story. At one point in my phone call with Sarah, she even said, 
Every time I tell them the truth, they overreact so dramatically that I just have to lie to keep the peace. That was a line that made me sigh and heartbreak, and at the same time, made me think of something I'd just heard days before while decorating our Christmas tree. If this court finds that Mr. Kringle is not who he says he is, then I would ask the court to judge which is worse, a lie that draws a smile, I knew it. or a truth that draws a tear. Yep, that's the 1994 remake of Miracle on 34th Street that my beautiful Christmas elf of a wife made me watch this past year. Now, not to be a big old grinchy bitch or anything, since I know it's an entire movie about Santa Claus being real, but that's a pretty messed up statement to end a kid's movie on, fictional or not. Personally, I think a very similar movie with a far better statement on honesty and spiritual transformation is the 2006 Martin Scorsese classic, The Departed. Okay, I lied about it being very similar, but which is better, a joke that brings a laugh or a truth that brings an awkward pause? So there's a line from The Departed where Leonardo DiCaprio is getting vetted by Martin Sheen and Mark Wahlberg, and they're all like, why don't you go pack the car and get us a cup of coffee and say hi to your mother for me? No, just kidding. They actually say, We deal in deception here. What we do not deal with is self-deception. For those who don't know the movie, they're all undercover cops, and their whole job is to deceive criminals. And because of that, they understand how difficult it is to maintain a true sense of identity amidst all the lies and half-truths they have to tell every single day. They know you can obviously pretend to be someone else in a relationship to get what you want or need, but they also know it's unsustainable because eventually you start lying to yourself if you're not already. So in conclusion, if you feel yourself inching towards or smack dab in the middle of deconstructing your long-held religious beliefs in order to experience the true peace and joy of spiritual transformation, then just know some relationships you hold dear are going to be the first thing to hit the fan. And while I don't know for sure, I have hope that in the end, it's worth it. Anyway, back to Sarah. So anyways, high school definitely struggled up and down, but I always thought like, you know, never in my life would have I imagined like leaving the faith, like just never. Um, I struggled with it a lot, but I didn't, you know, it was always like I would go back to it eventually. Like this, this happens to everyone, you know, nothing big. Um, I struggled a lot with like prayer in particular and in Islam and specifically within my community because you will go to different community like Muslim populations and they will consider different things more important mm-hmm. um, you know like like my family considers wearing the hijab very very important and very like necessary and um, it's an absolute must whereas other families are more specific on the kind of meat they buy and eat you know and it's 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 all because culture definitely plays a part and it they cannot be separated at all Um I think at least. And so, but anyways, within my community, prayer was everything. And it's like, oh, if you're not doing anything at all, at least like do your five prayers, you know? And I struggled with that a lot. I felt really guilty because I, when I was younger, I would, you know, I did really well with that and I definitely enjoyed doing it. It's, I was not being forced to do it. I, you know, did it out of like my own will. I saw benefit in doing it, you know, um, because it, I, f- I felt like it was benefiting me, but it wasn't like that for long. And so I struggled with that. Um, and eventually when I got to college, actually, so when I got to my university, um, they didn't have a Muslim student association. And so that's like the MSA and at every other like campus at California, there is one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there wasn't a large Muslim population to begin with um, at my university, um, but there was, you know, a good handful. And so um, I kind of thought my purpose or the reason why I was at this university was so I can spread the religion. I could mm. spread Islam. Mm-hmm. I like totally believed that it was, they had us like write a letter, like at the beginning that they would give to us when we graduated. And I told, like, I wrote that down. I was like, <laughs> I know I'm here. Like, this is, you know, my mission, whatever. Yeah. Um, and also because within like the first month or two, I had a close friend convert. So that like reinforced uh, yeah. that feeling. And we, you know, me and a couple others started an MSA and it was doing good. And a year later, we, the, a Muslim office opened up and also a um, prayer room um, wow. for anyone to use. Um, MSA Muslim Student Association? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's just the. It's like, got some traction. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was still, we were like, the administration was really helpful, but we were struggling because a lot of students actually, I felt like, did not really care yeah. <laughs> about our efforts. Um, there was very, like, few of us that really, like, less than 10. It was a small university. Um, but you know, I kept at it for like the first year and I was very like me and this particularly other student, we were very, um, strong and persistent about it. Um, and then that was like my freshman year. And then summer before my sophomore year, I was just going through a lot of personal struggles and that kind of just a lot of personal struggles that made me feel really guilty um for things like I I stopped praying I was like you know what I'm giving up like I can't seem to be doing this why am I even bothering but that made me feel like very very guilty that I even had that attitude um and just other things that came up that you know within Islam were forbidden or you know were not okay to feel or think or do or whatever and I was like it was so hard for me to comprehend um and it really made me feel depressed and I isolated myself that summer and definitely just was going through a lot of like personal struggles. And I think my solution was to just not care. I like stopped caring. Um, because that way I wouldn't feel guilty. I really was trying to run away from the guilt of like, you know, wanting things that were supposedly forbidden and me not understanding why they were. Um, so I kind of just stopped caring. And then, like you know, what things that you wanted that were felt like forbidden? Um, like, you know, not praying, um, wanting to have guy friends. I thought that was like not okay mm. or, you know, doing anything sexual outside of marriage that, you know, was not okay. Um, like, or, you know, acting on the, like if, you know, um, I mean, that was like kind of the gist of it all like during that summer, but it just, I think, like I said, what really what really was bothering me is that all of this made me feel guilty. And I really hated that feeling. I was like, I don't, I don't want to feel guilty. <laughs> um, and so I stopped caring and, you know, school started and I was okay. Um, but I kind of had more of a carefree attitude. Um, and then I started, um, I started making some more friends like online because I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone in person about this. I felt like I was the only person in the world going through this mm-hmm. at the time. <laughs> um, and so I started talking to people online anonymously because it was freeing to do that. Um, it was also safer. And, you know, the people I, re- I was speaking to were people I would not, I would never really speak to in person mm-hmm. either. Like I would not, 
I would not have a conversation with other guys unless it was like school related or, you know, business related or whatever. I like, that was just something my family in particular really like, um, you know, dug into me and it like stayed and lingered. And, and so that's just how I like that. My interaction with the opposite sex was very, very limited. Um, and also, um, like, you know, speaking with non-Muslims about Islam, not in a way of like, you know, having them ask me questions and me explaining, like, you know, kind of in a way preaching to them, but like more like talking about my doubts and, you know, both of us having this discussion dialogue. I would never do that with like a non-Muslim because, you know, they're not appropriate to talk to because they are going to steer you away and all of that. So I definitely turned to, um, yeah, like people online and I made some really good friends and again I really liked the fact that it was anonymous because I was not risking anything um and same thing for them you know I'm, we you know we didn't just talk about religion but we talked about all kinds of things that we both felt like we couldn't talk with the people in our lives with so um the spring of my sophomore year um two people in particular so one person I had met was actually very into like paranormal investigations really Yes. And then the other person I met was a complete atheist and has been like since he was like 11 years old or whatever. Um, And so, you know, I had really great conversations with both separately and all along the lines of like religion and and all of these things. And it just amazed me how, you know, if I was speaking with a Muslim or with someone that believed in like paranormal um, accounts or someone that didn't believe in either of those and was a complete atheist, they're all just having a different, basically, interpretation of the same of the same story. Yeah. And so it amazed me to know that, you know, I admired these two people. They were, to me, I saw them as, you know, smart people. They were both, you know, successful, like right in the head, nothing crazy. And I know plenty of Muslims are also very smart, very successful. Like, yeah. why is it that really smart people, there's really smart people out there, really successful people out there that believe in different things like if there is something as the truth then wouldn't you think everyone that's smart would like you know go after life would be worthless if you didn't have it there you go yeah Yeah. exactly so it it just didn't make any sense to me like all of these people are logical like there is you know you listen to this person and their reasoning sounds logical you you listen to the other person same thing their reasoning sounds logical so it's all it all to me was like okay this these are just interpretations more than anything else so my conclusion at the end which was months later (laughs) i'm like you know i definitely didn't think this at all but you know when i look back like my conclusion at the end was that okay there is no such thing as the truth which i definitely saw islam as to be and that's how i was taught um right now i think personally like everything is relative there is no such thing as the truth um and i'm not really interested in finding anything that would be the truth because mm. I just don't think it exists and I don't think it would f- give me any fulfillment of any kind. But anyways, so really great conversations with these people um, and just hearing their side of things. And also I'm really thankful to them because they, they listened to like what I had to say and without judgment, which was new to me. And also they asked me questions. So obviously they, they didn't see things the way I saw them. Um, but they didn't just like nod their head and be like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, you think this way and I think this way or whatever. They're like, okay, well, why do you think that way? And they started asking me questions that, um, I didn't know how to answer and questions that I even thought before, but I didn't allow myself to think in depth. Um, and so it was really fun to kind of 
it was fun, but also scary to have these conversations because I didn't know where they were leading. Um, you know, when I was younger, I, I like went to a lot of things we call halakat, and that's basically, I'm sure you guys have like a term that's equivalent. Um, what do you call them? Like the Bible circles? Or? Oh, like a Bible study. A Bible study. There you yeah, go. Things you like that. Talk around. Yeah. yeah. Same thing. Okay. I had, I, you know, grew up going to these things and, you know, I was always told you can ask any question you want. That's totally fine. You can question everything. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that, right. that's not actually the case. Yeah, you know, there's certain, the same thing in the Christian church. Exactly. Yeah. There's certain things you actually can't ask. And if you yeah. do, you're not going to get a satisfactory answer. And that's because again, in my opinion, I don't think there is a satisfactory answer. <laughs> that's why. So you said, how do I define what, yeah, what defines define? me? What, um, Especially since you had to have this like double life. Well, I think I'm all for freedom of speech and expression. If I'm, go- if I'm going to choose one thing that defines me, I definitely think those two things are very, very important to me because, you know, I would like to have this kind of conversation and I have with my really religious, um, like I had actually recently a conversation with a friend a childhood friend that um, she also just graduated and, you know, we got, we grabbed some coffee just to catch up. And she told me how like during college, she actually got closer to um, like Islam and she felt more religious. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually told her everything that I'm telling you guys now. Um, And I, I felt like comfortable enough to do that. And she took it so like, well, and they were, like you said earlier, there was no like, she wasn't trying to like, oh, bring me back to the religion. And I wasn't trying to push her away from it. Um, It was more of like, this is so cool that like, we're, you know, obviously that we have this freedom, like, you know, the freedom to choose. And that's like very, very important to me because, you know, I obviously grew up not having that. um, And also grew up believing that this was wrong. Like, you know, you don't, you don't have the freedom to choose because there's, there's a right and a wrong. And obviously you would go with the right, you know what I mean? So um, I'm very, and also just also talking about like sex, for example, like, you know, admitting that like, oh, I had really strong sexual desires. And that's one of the reasons that led me away from religion. And admitting that is like such a big deal to me because that's something I would have never been able to like express without getting a lot of judgment or, you know. Um, just looked at as weird and stuff. So I think um, I'm all for that. And I don't think I like practice it fully now just because obviously I'm kind of living two lives. Um, But I think when I move, I'd really like to kind of um, represent that, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm someone that's kind of already pretty frank and kind of speaks their mind kind of thing. And also, you know, a approach but I think there's always things that like are too taboo to say and stuff and I I just I'd rather you know things not be that way you know when I was having conversations uh, with my like online friends um, one thing that um, someone explained to me that I before like never kind of ever thought on my own was why don't you read the Quran as like a regular book and not as a holy book Mm -hmm. Um, and you know analyze it like you would any other book you know 
there was something about the Quran being like the, a divine book and words of God that was like, oh, you know, everything in there is the truth. Like this is, you know, like there's nothing that, you know, is better than it. All of this kind of stuff. And I kind of did some of like my own reading um, on like Islamic history and kind of, you know, we believe like the Quran is like, or Muslims believe that the Quran is literally God's words, mm-hmm. um, word for word, and that it's never been changed. And that's like something that Muslims pride themselves on. And they're like, oh, look, every other religion, like their holy book has been changed over and over again, but the Quran hasn't. And that's yeah, because... We've, we've made a lot of edits. I know. But, <laughs> but it's just, that's something that like Muslims use as like, oh, this is why Islam is the truth, because mm-hmm. it's never been changed and it never will be because God protects it because it's God's words, like word for word or whatever. Um so I kind of like definitely that was like in the early stages of like breaking that down and being like, actually, you know, supposedly the way the Quran, like the verses of the Quran were brought down is an angel um, told them to the prophet and, you know, the prophet would share them with his people and they just had it memorized. And then after the prophet passed away, a group of men got together and wrote it down and, you know, collected it as a book. Um, So, I mean, when you, we knew that, but when you think about it, it's like, well, there's actually no guarantee that this has not been, you know, re, like, changed or edited through word of mouth or whatever. It's exactly how ours was written. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, whatever. But yeah, I mean, you, you don't really think about that, like, growing up, like, you know, actually, like, how can we guarantee that? Anyway, so... I started seeing like the book, the Quran as not necessarily a holy book, but as something written by humans that, you know, also make mistakes, you know, just like me, no one's special. And they'll also have probably an ultimate motive or agenda in their minds. Most likely, you know, they grew up in a, spe- these men were Arabs and they lived in a specific society. And, you know, I'm sure they wrote things in a way that was for what they thought was better for them at the time. You know, so taking that into consideration. Anyways, now, I never questioned the Quran because I thought this is God's words. And you don't, you know, God is God. God is not a human. Um, And so when I started thinking like, oh, actually, the Quran is not God's words. That means the Quran, what's written in the Quran is not necessarily true. Everything can be questioned now. And specifically the fact that there is a heaven and a hell, right? So before that, I did not even, like, never would I have questioned, like, is there even a heaven and a hell? Like, that never really crossed my mind. Um, And I didn't see the importance of believing in that. Um, I thought that, like, you know, that's a given. That's like, of course, there's a heaven and hell after you die. Um, But really, like, if if you take it out of the Quran or any other, you know, holy book, um, there's no, like, you can't really confirm that in any way. So I think um, I didn't realize this, but knowing that there's a hell was kind of, like, um, subconsciously keeping me from working through more doubts and, you know, asking more questions. And like, a fear of... It was, yeah, I didn't even, like, realize it. It was, you know it was more like after this realization, like, oh, like if, 
if I don't believe that the Quran is God's words, then I don't need to believe that a heaven and a hell even exists. Uh And that definitely helped me like let go a lot more, Um, which was just interesting because I never thought like, I never like sat there at night and was like, oh my God, I'm so afraid of going to hell. I never like had that, but I guess subconsciously it was always like a, oh, like even if you're doubting Islam, you should still follow it because it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So that's what it was. That's a comment <laughs> as well. Yeah. I have, uh, I'm curious then like, as you're stripping away like all these foundational beliefs and motivations for life. Yeah. What is it that drives you now? Like what is life about, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I've received this question and I think I'm at a point where, you know how a lot of, a lot of people say like oh they're spiritual but not religious Uh so I used to say that too I'm like oh yeah I'm not religious anymore but I'm definitely like still spiritual and someone had asked me well what does that mean to you um and I identified it as well it's the opposite of being materialistic um and coming to now I do not think I'm spiritual at all because I'm very much concerned with like the material world around me. I'm very much concerned with like, okay, how am I going to afford everything on my own? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm worried about my social life. I'm worried about (laughs) my career. I'm worried about all of these things. And that's very much nothing spiritual, very much everything like material. And I'm okay with it. I'm like, you know what, this is just where I'm at in life. And before I used to think that, um, you know, having a good, like spiritual, um, uh, connection with God would kind of help resolve everything else. And at some point in my life, when I was like 12 years old, it did it, you know, whatever I was going through at 12, um, praying to God made me feel better. That obviously did not continue. And I'm at a point now where I'm like, I don't see that. I don't think being more spiritual would really necessarily help me. I could be wrong. You know, in a year from now, I could think that it, it does and take a more spiritual path. Um, or like a week from now, I don't know, but I'm more just, I'm okay with not knowing all the, um, answers to like the big questions of the world. I'm okay with that. I don't need to know. Um, I think also if you know, like there's kind of no point in living like this, no one (laughs) actually knows because (laughs) like if we all, if, if there was a truth out there and we all knew it, honestly, it would feel pretty pointless to kind of live because you know that's part of one thing that keeps a lot of people going is like they they're curious and they want to know like okay what's their purpose in life and what's you know the purpose of this and that and how everything falls into place if you knew all these answers like yeah it feels pretty bland so i really don't care about knowing um and i'm okay with saying that i used to be embarrassed by saying that but I'm, i'm okay with i'm definitely very indifferent about it and i think at times i'm more concerned with it and currently right now I really could care less how the world started and how it's going to end and what's going to happen after I die and stuff like I'm more concerned about you know like the the next two weeks (laughs) you know what I mean so and I'm okay with it and I don't think it's a bad thing and yeah that's interesting that you talk about like the difference between like physical and and material because I don't know one of the things spiritual and material yeah spiritual sorry (sighs) that's I missed, did I say physical and material? Yeah. yeah. The spiritual and uh, the material, like uh, Richard Rohr, one of the guys that's like my favorite mm-hmm. Christian authors. He's really just kind of like a universalist author at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Judeo-Christian universalist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> friar, a Franciscan, whatever. But um, his whole thing, one of the things he repeats all the time that we always joke around about because it's kind of like a new concept for us is everything physical is spiritual. Mm-hmm. So there's times where we'll just feel like disconnected from God. And it's like, do you really need a nap? 
Like, yeah. are you are you tired? You know what I mean? Like, am I depressed and do I feel like I hate my life? Or is it like I haven't eaten in six hours and I was up really late last night working on some project for work that I hate mm-hmm. and I only have this job because I have to pay my bills? Is it just like accumulation of shitty physical circumstances that make mm-hmm. your spiritual life feel empty or meaningless? Um, I know I used to get so frustrated um, because like... Um, Growing up, I just I've had kind of a long time struggle with depression, and I was constantly hit with like when I was feeling depressed, people would just constantly be like, "Well, how's your relationship with God?" Like, <laughs> like you, that's the reason for it. Yeah, are you are you reading your Bible? Yeah. Are you like are you spending quiet time with God? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, no, but I somehow don't feel like that's gonna cure me. Mm-hmm. Like, and I I would get so angry. I've got about a proverb that. for you, brother. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, just trying to hit me with Bible verses and stuff like that. And I'd get so mad about it. And I think um, I think there is something, like, I, I love the concept of spirituality and the physical. And, like, I don't think there's anything, there is, like, nothing wrong spiritually or otherwise with sort of being focused on, like, the next two weeks of your life. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there is an element of that that is spiritual. I think there's an argument to be made that being present and being here and just being like what is now and what mm-hmm. is within my control and mm-hmm. what is not within my control there you go. is sort of like deeply spiritual. It's deeply spiritual in a non-controlling way. I think that the problem with uh, – I think that often the problem with so many organized religions and certainly the one that I grew up with mm-hmm. is that religion is just a way of trying to control – the mystic mm-hmm. and like the, the the kind of unexplainable mysticism of the universe. Mm-hmm. It it it, take, it it's trying to it's 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 trying to shove the impossible into a box. Mm-hmm. And I think that like we're certainly seeing this within the Christian church, and that's sort of like the whole purpose of this podcast is that there are tons and tons of people. Our age, we're both very, very old. I'm about to turn 30. I, I just turned Whoa. 29. I I'm a baby vividly remember Dan. the year you were born. Mm-hmm. Vividly. Uh, I remember like shoveling snow in my driveway <laughs> that year. Um, so like, I think that there's, there's this whole generation of people between your age and mm-hmm. our age within our faith where like they are leaving the church en masse. Like... By the thousands, mm-hmm. people are just like, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not going to church. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go. I'm sick of having this shoved down my throat. And I'm I'm not buying it. It doesn't add up. When I look at the world, when I watch the news, when I read, when I like everything I'm looking at, it does not jive with what I have been told is the word of God mm-hmm. in this book. And has, because then the, like, the word of God can be, it can be weaponized. It can be used as a tool. It yeah. can be used to manipulate. So, like, there are tons of people within our faith who are, like, looking for almost, like, exactly what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to, I just want to, like, release that. And I just want to be a little bit more present and a little bit less shackled. Yeah, you're setting yourself free. So I think, I I mean, I'm interested in whether or not this is happening in, uh, in Islam in the way that it's happening in Christianity. So 
I pose this question to Sarah about whether or not this sort of spiritual emergence was occurring in the Islamic faith the way it has in the Christian faith. But obviously, that's a loaded question for someone just beginning to explore the limits of their spirituality. Sarah's about the age I was when I first started having to burn down my own religious structures, but that was 10 years ago for me. So I've had plenty of time to read books and listen to podcasts and bounce my ideas off of friends, Christian and pagan alike. Listening back, I realize I could probably do some pretty basic Googling and come up with an answer for myself. So here I am. I must ask for grace here. In a moment, I'm going to begin to pronounce Arabic names and words, and while I'll do my best, I mean no offense or disrespect if I don't absolutely nail something. I imagine we are all at least mildly familiar with the Quran being understood to have been the word of Allah written verbatim by the Prophet Muhammad around 500 BC. There have been a wide range of theological offshoots from Islam, exactly as there have been in Christianity, that differ based on scriptural interpretation and political factors. There are two important legal concepts used in the hermeneutical understandings of the Quran, and they vastly change the way it is taught. Taklid, which means imitation or an adherence to legal precedent, and its counterpoint, ishtihad, which means independent reasoning using one's full mental faculties in finding the solution to a complex legal question. Using ishtihad in reading the Quran has always been a point of controversy, and many believe it cannot be properly done by someone unless they understand the original Arabic and the important historic and cultural contexts as they were at the time. Not all Muslims read the Quran literally, and many believe that while it is the message of God, it was not meant to be read without interpretation. Sounds familiar. While there have always been differing views and interpretations of the Quran, most progressive Islamic reforms can start to be seen emerging during the 1800s, when traditional Muslim laws and moral values were coming into contact with Western modernism and Enlightenment ideals like liberty and political rights. Rifa al-Tatawi was an Egyptian scholar and cultural liaison with France who began to explore the potential marriage between the Quran and European social progress. He argued that a society could not survive without a willingness to adapt and evolve. A fellow Egyptian religious scholar, Muhammad Abda, is considered to be a founding father of modernist Islam, arguing that the faith was failing if it relied on the teachings and interpretations of clerics who hadn't lived in hundreds of years. He sought to break down the historically dogmatic and patriarchal systems imposed by many teachings, and was among the first scholars to teach that Allah's true vision for mankind was to use their wisdom and intelligence to grow from children into spiritual adulthood, without a bound devotion to ritual obedience. He was anti-polygamy, pro-Western enlightenment, and saw Islam as being God's path to providing human rights and happiness to all. It was pretty saucy stuff. Later, another Egyptian scholar, not sure what's up with Egypt, I would have to Google more on that, named Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid, explored even more liberal concepts by challenging what the divine origin of the Quran truly meant and argued that its writing was to be reinterpreted because it was the product of a specific time and place. He took things a step too far, was declared an apostate by an Egyptian Sharia court, and was forced to flee for his life. That was in 1995. When I was Sarah's age, 20 or 21, I started reading authors like Donald Miller and Brian McLaren for the first time. They introduced me to the emergent church and the concept of a generous orthodoxy. I was blessed that my dad was a scholar who encouraged me to read and think beyond what I was told, and he openly challenged biblical literalism. My mom introduced me to Anne Lamott, the first person I ever read who referenced God as she and her, 
These writers were gateway drugs to people like Rob Bell, who challenged the idea of heaven and hell for me, and was absolutely considered a heretic at my college. As I got older, I learned a lot of these concepts were influenced by people like Richard Rohr, whom Colton and I reference all the time, and I was drawn to his message of the universal Christ and a broader understanding of faith than I had ever imagined was permissible. I think it's common for us to reach an age where we bump up against the walls of our religion and we react by believing our God was wrong. The more I live and the more conversations I have, the more I believe we are actually bumping against the walls of our culture. I can make myself sound like an academic all I want, but the truth is, I wanted to break the rules. I didn't understand why God would send me to hell for drinking or fooling around with girls, and it frustrated me, so I decided I'd walk away from faith. I tested the edges of my tribe and decided to wander off into the woods. Now, 10 years later, I'm still out here, stumbling, tripping, and crossing old paths. I believe wherever you are in your walk, away from or back towards whatever faith you identify with, scholars, writers, and thinkers have walked those woods with you. Actually, I believe God is out there too. Assalamu alaikum. You know, if I were to go back to Islam, it would be because I chose to, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be because this is what I was raised or, you know, what I was told or whatever. Um, but I did have one more question. Um, you. He's 6'8. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My brother's six five, so like Dang. Whoa, see? Dude, that missed you. <laughs> huh? how, yeah. You missed those genes. Oh yeah, I know. How, like, <laughs> how old is your brother? He's seventeen. He just graduated oh, he high school. Still, he could still what grow, man. He was yeah. always taller than me, I feel like. <laughs> always. How like three years younger than me. That's a big dude. That's a big dude. That's like even jeans are sexist. They're like, <laughs> nah, <laughs> pass. <woman. laughs> Men get the tall jeans. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask about, um, you spoke about it uh, throughout our conversation about um, still believing or it was easier for you to um, kind of have God be all good, mm-hmm. but not necessarily all powerful. But are you still like, I mean, for me in Islam, like, there was no emphasis on like God is all loving. I feel like as much as it is in Christianity, I feel like I see that all the time. Like God is love, God is love, God is love. You know, the good side definitely, but love not really. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do both of you guys like feel about that now? Um, Like is God love to you guys? Is that all he is? Or, you know, how do you guys understand that? So the, there is a, Correct me if I'm wrong. Colton's more of the biblical scholar here. I'm much more of like an armchair, uh, <laughs> armchair theologian. The, theologian? How do you say the <laughs> word? Theologian. I'm an I'm an armchair <laughs> theologian. Um, there is a uh, is the passage God is love. Does that actually exist in the Bible? You're talking about like First John, like yeah, God is, is that love in there? God is love. love. Living, yeah, yeah. So there's this generally that concept comes from this one passage. That, okay, it's a, and it's longer than that. I didn't actually even know it was a passage. <laughs> there, yeah, there's a passage in there. It's in the book somewhere. It uh-huh. says God is love, and that is technically that seems to be what people are are drawing from mm-hmm. when they read that and when they say that like God is all loving. They're sort of referencing that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this concept that like God is love. What I was taught as a kid is that God is still like, he is literally a big man, like up somewhere yeah. who is everywhere overseeing everything. But mm-hmm. he literally is a big king. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he literally gave his son to earth. Mm-hmm. He will literally come back and destroy everything but save his people. Like all of that was very mm-hmm. literal and like very kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's God is love is like much more of a gray area. Like the concept that I was raised with was he's this big king, but love is his primary motivation. Okay. So that when that passage says God is love, it's like his key thing, like his essence, what defines him is love. But like a loving father sometimes has to punish their children. Okay. Uh, like, you know, if he can't be all loving without also bringing wrath and bringing a sword mm-hmm. against evil. And like, it's all very, it's very like mythical and like military. <laughs> Story-like. It's, yeah. It's a lot of swords and fire. Mm-hmm. Um now, when I look at God as love, I don't know if that means that God manifests itself as love, as love we actually see in the world, mm-hmm. the love that we actually experience when yeah. we experience love. Like when you see like uh, a mother and a child or two people in love with each other or two friends really like bearing one another's pain and loving each other, mm-hmm. is that God? Is like, is that what we are watching? Is God more of like, is the divine almost like a metaphor for this, for this thing that is like binding us all together Mm -hmm. and giving us like the key motivation to keep pushing forward in, in the face of all of the odds that seem to be stacked up against us as a species. Like we, we seem to be teetering on the precipice of completely wiping ourselves out of existence but we keep pushing forward out of this hope that we can somehow make a better future Mm -hmm. we can somehow love our children enough to eradicate hate amongst ourselves yeah like is that god or is there literally a separate otherness that is loving of us Mm -hmm. i don't know the answer to that question that's that's the gray area that mm-hmm. I get to live in right now. Okay. So short Dang. but sweet that answer <laughs> there was. There was. <laughs> like Man, all my I always answers. get like in the zone of like listening and then forget to formulate a good answer. <laughs> um, the question is, how do we deal with like God as love? Yeah. How do you understand that? Is that how you see it or, or what does that mean to you? <sighs> I'm in like a pretty interesting season with relating to God in general, but, um, in Christianity, there's like this notion of the Trinity. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Like Father, Son, and Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. And Richard War, the guy that I love the most, who's been like the most enlightening author for me, talks about like the literally the Greek terminology for the Trinity is a circle dance. It's just three, it's three entities just relating, participating with each other. And so I think more than I think about God as love, I think about God as a relationship. Um, and it's first a relationship with myself and I go deep into myself and then that's where God is. And okay. there's a, there's a passage in the Bible where Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. Okay. And it's this notion of like, love is such a loaded word because you think about someone who's loving wouldn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. But then you think about a relationship where you're in love with someone and you do hurt them. So does that mean love is not there? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. So I just think of it like the relationship to me is a lot more of an open concept because sometimes God's absent. Sometimes God's very present. Sometimes God's just mysterious. Mm-hmm. And that to me is more of what God is because love 
has too many connotations to make sense, but I do feel like there's a relationship to be had. Mm-hmm. And I think love is a component of that. Um, but I don't know. It's a mystery. I'm very much a mystic. I think we've had conversations <laughs> about that. Like the the mystery is endlessly knowable. What When we were talking about these droves of um, millennial Christians who all seem to be the ages, they're all, they're like between 21 and 35. It's yeah. kind of like, that seems to be the age group we're like relating to the most. Yeah. Um, they are leaving religion for mysticism. Mm-hmm. And uh, mysticism is not as good at uh, setting up churches and having like standardized <laughs> meeting times. <laughs> so we have like a hard time finding each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's a little bit harder to like find community. Very easy to find church communities. Oh, I know. We oh, often yeah. feel we often feel very very alienated yeah. from those places. And we yeah. t- we we came from uh, we came from a really big church in which kind of within a one year period there was sort of like a mass exodus of mm, yeah. a, a lot of people just sort of there was kind of like a a unified outgrowing. Like everybody just sort of was like this is not home anymore. Yeah, this isn't it. And uh, we all sort of like wandered out into our own ways. And uh, now a bunch of those people listen to this podcast. <laughs> so it, I, it's interesting how how it happens that way. I think mysticism, I would call myself a mystic, especially in this, we were talking about political climate. Yeah. I would call myself a mystic before I'd probably call myself a Christian in this moment. Mm. I will claim the title... Uh, I will I will call Christianity my language, yeah. Because the language of Christianity is like it's like my mother tongue. It's like English being the the first language okay. I can. I, I could learn to speak Spanish. I could learn to speak Russian. Um, if I had lots and lots and lots of these conversations and read lots and lots and lots of books mm-hmm. and read the Quran front to back or or yeah. however it's designed to be read, uh, I don't know that it's front to back. Right to left. I could, uh, I could, I mean, I could learn Arabic and if I like studied it all, yeah, yeah. but it would never be my mother tongue. Got it. Um, like Christianity will always be the thing that my brain thinks in and mm-hmm. it's how I communicate spirituality. Okay. But I'm not necessarily trying to get everybody else to, to mm-hmm. get like Christianity to be their mother tongue. It's not going to be yeah. for a lot of people, yeah. no, but it doesn't mean it. we can't have conversations. Yeah. Of course. Mysticism is yeah. all about your personal experience of the divine or of mm-hmm. love or truth or insert your word, which was revolutionary for me because I never thought about it being an experience. I thought about it being scripture and tradition yeah. and, right, and logic. Right and wrong. Yeah. Black and white. Yeah. That's what God is. You, you logic right. got out. Um, by memorizing verses and books and all that shit. Col- Same. Colton and I have wandered into the gray. and uh, <laughs> I've joined you guys. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. That's what the back is about. Welcome to the gray. It's a good place. If there was anything you wanted to say to young Muslims, mm-hmm. what would it be? And if there was anything you wanted to say to... Um, like majority Americans or Christian Americans about Muslims or people experiencing Mm -hmm. Islam Mm -hmm. the way you've experienced it, what might that be? Mm -hmm. So what I would say to young Muslims, let's go with that first. I think I would tell them that It is okay 
to be religious or to not be religious and to define that term in the way you would like to. Um, It is also okay to pick and choose from a religion or culture or anything else um, to pick and choose what you like, what you don't like, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, and that doesn't have to stick with you for the rest of your life. It's not, you know, something that's set in stone or concrete. Um, You know, you grow and you change and you get exposed to different things and you experience different things. Um, And with that, you start having different needs and, you know, uh, different perspectives. Um, and so your what you end up picking and choosing, if you would want to do that, um, ends up changing with time. Um, and that is okay. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not bad. That's not hypocritical. Um, you can do that. Um, and then what I would say to non-Muslims, like young non-Muslims too, about Muslims. Yeah, or just the, like, mm. just Americans who come Americans. from, you know, yeah. the majority. Mm. I guess, I mean, just something I've learned is that really, um, like, I have more in common with you guys because even if there is, like, nine or ten years between us, more with you guys than, like, you know, Muslims who grew up here um, and can be very Americanized but are, like, you know, 20 years older than me or 30 years older than me. Um, But at the same time, I can relate more with people that, you know, grew up in West L.A. than people that, like, grew up in, like, Ohio or something. Um, So I think, you know, even if you find a difference in someone else. Oftentimes there's so much more like common things you can find with that person that allows you to like relate to them. Um, and so kind of um, just allowing differences to be there, but focusing more on like, what do we have in common? And um, I think, you know, it, it's not bad to not to focus on differences, but you can also just let them be like, you know, I don't, I feel like there's a heavy culture on let's talk about our differences and appreciate them and stuff like that. And I personally would just rather, you know, be like, let's talk about what we have in common. And I feel like that brings me closer to different people around me. So even if, you know, you have a different religion than someone you probably can relate to them on so many different other aspects, just, you know, whether you're around the same age group or you've lived, you've grew up in the same kind of environment or the same city um, or go to like the same youth center, or, like, you know, you've been in the same like summer camp, whatever it is, have the same social circle. Um, it, differences don't matter as much as things that you have in common with others. Yeah. More unites than divides. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It. You're a special human being for a number of reasons, and I appreciate you giving your time and mm-hmm. vulnerability and perspective uh, to our podcast. And I know there'll be more than a few people who can relate who mm-hmm. may be surprised to find out that they relate to a yeah. 20-year-old Muslim woman. You have a powerful voice. Please don't be afraid to share it. Well, thank you guys for giving me a platform to 
share it openly. Um, I really enjoyed my time doing this. I probably could honestly go on for hours talking about this. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's just... Um, we'll have you back is. in a year. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Update. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. 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 We'll talk again in the future. Thank yeah. you. I take it. Thank you. All right. Thank you.